This is, uh, we're going to jump right in and just go ahead and read. Uh, Caitlin's going to read for us. This is Luke chapter 8, verses 26 uh, through 39. So, thank you. They sailed to the region of <clears throat> the Gerasenes, yeah. which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? <clears throat> Legion, he replied, <clears throat> because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave, him, leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Word of the Lord. Yeah. All right, let me pray for us, um, and then we'll dive into this absolutely crazy encounter. All right. Lord, uh, guard us now uh, as we study your word, as we open it up. Uh, Lord, there's a lot in here that's hard to understand and even stuff we don't understand, uh, but pray that we would see you clearly as we prepare uh, to come to your table that is something we can see very clearly. Uh, which is how you use uh, your power and your position for us. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So, uh, yeah, if you're following along, uh, this is a story about demon possession, uh, which is a pretty crazy encounter. I'm not sure. You could probably argue that this is one of the most extreme expressions of the supernatural world uh, and clear picture of what we see uh, when good is kind of contending against evil uh, in the entire New Testament. I mean, it's just really, really out there in our face. Uh, I'm looking forward for those people who are in small groups uh, for y'all to pick this one apart. There's a lot in here. Uh, there'll be a lot of bones left in the fish uh, for you to go through. Um, but uh, this is a story of someone who, uh, this demon-possessed guy, who's completely under the power and control of evil. That's the, pic the picture we have here. Uh, somebody who's completely under the power and the control of evil, 
But it's also a story, uh, we're going to look a lot at the townspeople or these people in the region of the Gerasenes. It's also a story about them. And that's probably where we'll probably find ourselves a little bit more. I, I thought about asking, has anybody in here experienced what this is uh, talking about? Either been around somebody who's been possessed or uh, if you spent any time overseas, that may be a more normal thing for you. Uh, but subtle ways in these townspeople where sin and evil are at work in them. So this is not a parable. This is not some made-up story. This is a historical account. It's in three of the four Gospels. Uh, and we may struggle. You may struggle as we go through this. I'm going to kind of set this up before we get into the points. You may struggle with some of this account because you maybe haven't experienced anything like it. Like in our culture today, uh, we even struggle with the idea of saying something is evil. Like putting that kind of a statement on it. That's evil. That's wrong. Everything is very relative right now. We certainly have a hard time saying that's a supernatural thing that we can't explain. Because we live in an age where, and these are great things, right? Technology, science, psychology, medicine. I mean, we have massive advancements that these people uh, did not have at their, you know, in their life experience. And we're used to being able to kind of eradicate or explain or deal with things that seem out of control through all of those things. Well, we just got to kind of think better about this, or we got to kind of understand our story better. Or we kind of, kind of, kind of, what's the technological advancement or science or things that's going to kind of get us around this? But we don't like thinking, modern people, modern Western people don't like thinking that we have so little control and the kind of little control that we see everyone in this story come to realize. We're not the ones in control. That's what happens in this story. So we may struggle to connect with that because we have a lot of things working to kind of keep us from feeling like we're out of control. Science, technology, all that stuff. But remember, this series is, is called Be Curious uh, in Search of the Real Jesus. So I, want you to, I want you to focus on Jesus in this story. Um, Focus on him. We're going to talk about the townspeople. We're going to talk about the demon-possessed guy. But be curious about Jesus. Don't be, I would encourage you, overly curious uh, about evil, uh, about demon possession. Uh, we can't and we won't tackle everything that could be said about that topic uh, this morning. Other than to say this, um, that if the Bible is, and you're in the place where we believe this about the Bible, the Bible is God's revealed inherent word it's inspired and he's given it to us because he says this is what i want you to know about me this is what i want you to know about you this is what i want you to know about the world and about reality so if the bible is real then we're, we're operating this morning out of that assumption that the supernatural is real okay that the supernatural is real if you believe if you come to this table this morning you're saying that jesus is real that jesus was the son of god the incarnate son of god and that he really needed to come and die for sin, right? That's what we claim when we come to this table. So that if sin is a real thing, evil is a real thing. David in, in Psalm 51, when he said, after you know, cheating with Bathsheba, he said, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Evil and sin are used synonymously all the time in Scripture. So if sin is a real thing, and we needed Jesus to come do something about that, then evil is a real thing. So scripture says angels are real, Satan is real, demons are real. That's why when he teaches us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, he 
says what? Deliver us from evil. Because evil is a real thing and you need to be delivered from it, right? So our awareness of those realities, the things that kind of keep all of that at bay, technology, science, medicine, all those things, our awareness of those realities, they may be muted or we may be completely out of focus with the fact that this stuff is real and true and happening, but my lack of awareness doesn't make it not real, right? Like, I live with a general lack of unawareness about people who practice medieval role-playing in the park, but that doesn't mean that those people don't exist. They're out there doing that, right? Maybe today. But here's where I really want us to focus. I want us to focus on this because there will be a lot of places to kind of get off into the weeds. This is a story about power. It's a story about a man under the power and the control of many demons. And it's a story about a group of townspeople in a region who had tried in their own power to try to kind of contain this guy, right? And it's a story about Jesus choosing to exercise his power and his authority in such a way that exposes that that group of townspeople has a slightly less obvious power and control going on in their life like this demon-possessed guy. All right? You ready to go? Here we go. Three things. The power of evil and sin to deform us. That's the first thing we're going to talk about. The second thing we're going to talk about is the power of Jesus over evil and sin to transform us. And then the third thing is the power of telling what Jesus has done for us. That's kind of where this ends, all right? The power of evil and sin to deform us, the power of Jesus over evil and sin to transform us, and the power of telling what Jesus has done. Okay, the power of evil and sin to deform us. I really just encourage you, because sometimes you just need like an extreme case to kind of see something really clearly, right? Like it's got to be just like, this is an extreme case study and what evil and what sin does to us. You've heard me say before, one of my mentors, he uses this phrase, is my Jesus knows what sin has done to me. Not what sin I've done, but what sin has done to me, what sin has done to the world, right? What sin has done to this demon-possessed guy, what evil has done to this guy, is it has disintegrated him in every aspect of his life. Because that's what evil and sin does. It disintegrates us. From God, from other people, from our very selves, right? That's what sin does. It, it's corrosive. It breaks us down. It destroys our fundamental humanity. Scripture says we were created in the image of God to bear and reflect his image. We were to live as image bearers in relationship with one another and with him, right? It's destroying that image of God. It's disintegrating that image of God in man, and it reduces us to something less than what we were created to be because God created us to be something. This is super obvious in the demon-possessed guy. It's a little less obvious in the townspeople. We'll get to them in a second. Because he's literally disintegrating, right? I mean, this is a, you could you like sink into the details of the story. This guy is wacky out of control. I mean, scary. We don't have a ton, very little. We get a little hint here in the passage of any foreknowledge of this guy. So there's no reason to think 
that he's done any one particular thing to get himself into this situation. We see situations like this. You meet, maybe, I mean, I think this is somewhere in my notes. Every small town has a guy like this. Like in my hometown, we literally had a guy named Hoggy Miller. Think about that. Yeah, I know, Hoggy Miller. And he lived on the outskirts of town, and he, had, he lived in a junkyard in an old school bus. I know, this sounds like that is not possible, but that's true. And there were all sorts of stories that went along with Hoggy Miller, but basically the town's kids knew you don't go around his property because that guy is not safe, right? But probably every single one of you, if you grew up in a small town, maybe not, maybe if you grew up in a city, everybody has a name like that, right? But he hasn't necessarily done any one particular thing to find himself in this place. Like when we see somebody in this condition, oftentimes we'd ask this question, how'd that happen, Right? How'd they get into that condition? There's even other places in scripture where there are people like this pointed out and people ask this question, did his parents sin or did he sin to get into this condition? See, how we naturally, we want to kind of naturally reason it out, put some kind of explainable spin on it so we can kind of control it and say, well, that's why that happened. We don't have that here. He's just possessed, right? And he's possessed like this. Here's his condition. Here's some of the words. He's tormented. When you're tormented, literally think of that like being torn apart. I'm being torn apart at the seams. That's what it means to be tormented. He's being driven and seized by these impure spirits. He's enslaved to them, right? These townspeople, they try to kind of enslave him, right? But they're not powerful enough to keep him in chains or keep him in check but he's also, this demon-possessed guy, he's not powerful enough to break the spiritual bondage and chains that he's in. Like, they put him in physical chains, and he's powerful enough through this supernatural demon possession. He can break those chains, but he can't break the chains of being possessed. He's in, he's in two sets of chains. Spiritual bondage, spiritual chains. So he's tormented, he's powerful, but he's not powerful enough to break the spiritual bondage. But the most stark thing that stands out, the most disintegrating thing about this for this guy is that when Jesus asks him his name, he doesn't say his name. It says there, Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied. He doesn't say Cornelius, right? Or whatever his name was, Bert, I think is Randy's favorite character, made up Bible character. You know, he doesn't say, you know, I'm whatever. Cornelius, he answers Legion. When you read the dialogue closely, if you go back into the dialogue, I'd encourage you to do it. As the speaking parts go on, you literally see him almost like someone who's schizophrenic. He's answering, and then the demons are answering. He's answering, and then, and what's the picture here? The picture here is, is that he has completely lost his identity apart from this evil. That sin, maybe another way to say it, is sin has renamed him. Because that's what sin does. That's what sin has done to you and me. Some of you believe what sin says about you more than you believe what Jesus says about you. I'm broken goods. I'm damaged goods. I continue to fail in this area. I'm not enough this. I'm too much of this. Whatever. Shame is what I'm talking about. That's what sin does. It renames us. It torments us. Right? And we're not powerful enough to break the bondage that it creates. 
We see that so clearly in this guy. Sin and evil has disintegrated the image of God in him in almost every aspect. It's, it's barely hanging on at this point. What's less obvious is the townspeople. How has evil and sin, how has that got power in their lives in a way that's maybe a little harder to see? And we only really get a window into that after Jesus has cast out these impure spirits and restored this guy to a new place, right? Because their response should cause us to stop and go, what? Really? That's how you respond to this? Like, think about this for a second. You know, I, I ask us oftentimes, use your sanctified imagination. Use your imagination here for a second. It says there in verse 27, for a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in the house. So what does that imply? What it implies is this. There was a time where he did wear clothes and he did live in a house. It had been a while, but there was a time when this guy was just a dude in the village with everybody else, right? He was a normal person. He was a part of the fabric of community. So maybe this disintegration, we don't know, but this, this possession, it hadn't happened like an all one fell swoop. Maybe it was over a period of time, but at one point, this guy was a part. He was integrated. He was a part of the community, a part of the region, a part of the family. And at one point, eventually, things, I guess, we can kind of conclude this, had gotten so bad that they finally said, we don't know what else to do. Like, we kind of, kind of tried to ignore it and tolerate it. But eventually, they tried to chain him up, and they paid people to guard him. Think about that. Like, how bad do things have to get to where you're chaining somebody up and saying, I need you to stand close to this guy and make sure that he doesn't come over here and disrupt everything else that's going on? We're going to try to control him or try to control his effect on us. But you kind of get this sense that they had gotten to the position where they're like, if we can just kind of get him over there and under control, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, and we can get back to what we're doing, right? I mean, imagine living with a person who's screaming out, cutting himself in some of the other accounts, day and night, living in the graveyard. Like, how do you talk to your kids about that? Hey, Dad, what, what's going on over there? Oh, that's Cornelius, you know? How do you, what do you do with it? Why when this guy who is clearly out of control, who is wreaking havoc on the region, who's a danger to himself and danger to everyone else in his condition, a guy who they've tried to tolerate, they've tried to control, and eventually they've kind of just, he's over there, right? Why when Jesus sets him free from all of that, why are they afraid of Jesus and so afraid of Jesus they're saying, get out of here? Why are they not saying, hallelujah, Bert's free, you know, Cornelius, oh my gosh. Brother, it's been 10 years that you've been like that and we have missed you so much. You're restored to the community, amazing, praise God, this thing that was so out of our control you did it. You, you set him free, Jesus. Oh, my gosh. Why is that not the response? 
That should shock us, y'all. That should stop us in our tracks and go, wait, what? They were dealing with that? He was dealing with that? And then it all went away like that? And we're telling Jesus, get out of here? That, that should shake us and wake us up a little bit. Why not praise God? Why not thank you? Why not amazing? Why not fall down and worship Jesus? Is it possible that they had gotten so accustomed to this being the normal? That they had moved on with their lives, right? And just gotten acclimatized to kind of the brokenness of this man and the brokenness that he brought into the community. This is just kind of the way things are. That when that was overturned by one word from Jesus, get out of the guy. That they had no sense of relief because they, they had just grown so, this is just the norm. This is just the way it is. Is it that? Or is it possible that when they came out to see this guy, what they also saw was 2,000 pigs floating belly up in a bay? And that their hearts actually were more concerned about that than they were about this guy being restored. I mean, isn't that the sense you get? That they seem more concerned, because this was a town, I mean, there's a lot of debate about this is a Gentile area where these Jewish people raising pigs. Is Jesus? What? The reality is, is this was a herd of pigs, it's about 2,000 pigs, and as someone, y'all, this is a pig story, like, I haul, I farmed hogs. I should be dropping so many hog illustrations right now, but every one of my hog illustrations would take 15 minutes to tell. Trust me, hogs, they might be demon-possessed <laughs> just by nature. We don't know that. I mean, they says they went into the hogs, but most of the pigs I worked with felt that way. 2,000 hogs. Right now, the market rate, because I know how to look up this stuff, y'all, the market rate for a hog is three fifty a pound. To get a hog to market weight is about two hundred and forty to two hundred and eighty pounds, average two sixty. Let's go with two fifty. You do the math on that, two hundred and fifty pounds at three dollars fifty cents a pound, you're talking about one point five to two million dollar range worth of money is laying in the bay, bobbing. That's with inflation and all that. But to them, you understand what I'm getting at. <laughs> Is it possible that these are, we like pigs over people, people? That it, is it possible that they're like, man, that's great for Cornelius, but uh, our local economy just got destroyed for this guy to get set free? And I ain't cool with that. That I like Jesus using his power and his authority in certain ways, but I don't like him using his power to expose what has power over me. And what I might value more than a fellow image bearer being restored, because that's what happened to this guy. He was reintegrated, right? With himself, with the community, and with God. Yeah, that's great, but what about my pig portfolio? We dig that you used your power to change him but in changing him, you messed with something we didn't want you to change. It's almost like they're saying, great, change him, don't change us. 
we're kind of cool with how things are going here. The scary thing, y'all, this was this bugged me. Me. Not about y'all, about me. <laughs> the demons and the townspeople actually, to me, seem to have the most in common by the end of this story. And here's what they have in common. They're the only ones who want to get away from Jesus. Jesus displays his power and his authority, and the demons want to get away, and the townspeople want to get away. It says here that the demons begged Jesus, let us leave, right? Because Jesus had commanded them, right? It says they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. Order us somewhere else, not the abyss, but you order us. What do the demons understand? Son of the most high God, they call him. You're in charge. You're the king of kings and the lord of lords. You are the one in authority here. We're not in authority. We are begging you, let us go, let us go, let us go, right? Here's the scary thing is the townspeople asked Jesus to leave. What does that say? Like if I, <laughs> this is so uncomfortable, if I asked one of you to leave right now, I mean, or if you have a guest in your house and you ask them to leave, what is that saying? This is mine. I'm in a position of authority to ask you to leave. I'm not begging to leave. I'm asking you to go. You see it? They're asking Jesus to leave. The demons are asking to be ordered somewhere. They're ordering Jesus, get out of here. Literally, the word ask, the Greek word ask, this is what, what the translator said about it. The more frequently uh, the word suggests that a petitioner is on footing of equality or familiarity with the person in whom he requests, it is used of a king making a request from another king. That's how that word's most often used. One king talking to another. So when the townspeople ask, you see what they're saying? They're saying, hey, this is our region. You don't mess with this. We're kings here. You, you leave. The demons beg for permission to leave because they know Jesus is king. The townspeople ask Jesus to leave because they see him as a rival to the kingship of their lives. You see it? The sin and the evil that the, that the demon-possessed guy, it's subtle, y'all but it's displaying itself in a far harder way to see because likely what had control over them, which it would appear was pigs and money, was more culturally acceptable, but maybe just as destructive. I like Jesus taking the demons out of power and out of the power position in this guy's life, but I don't like Jesus taking money out of the power position it has in my life. C.S. Lewis says this in the screw tape letters, which my dad read to me as bedtime stories. I know, y'all. That explains a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other to, is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So two equal and opposite errors. Don't even believe they exist or be really interested in them. 
They themselves, talking about the devils, are equally pleased by both errors, and they hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. You hear what he's saying? He's basically saying this. Uh, you can disbelieve in this stuff, or you can overbelieve in it, but to them, it doesn't even matter. If I can get you with materialism, I don't have to send in the big guns. If I can get you so away from God just because you're so in love with stuff, that's just as successful as if I have to take you over with a demon, is effectively what C.S. Lewis is saying there. And I think that's what's going on here. They're as far from the heart of God, the townspeople, as the guy who was demon-possessed was. It just wasn't so obvious. They like Jesus taking the demon out of the power position in the guy's life, but not money out of the power position in theirs. 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Money, it's not evil. It's not what I'm saying. Don't go there. But he is saying the overlove of it could be. So that's the power of sin and evil to, to deform us. How about the power of Jesus over evil and sin to transform us? Because this story... Here we go. It's clearly about Jesus having power. Like Jesus, you think about how afraid these people were of this dude, how afraid everyone is of this guy. And this guy comes running up to Jesus, and Jesus is not afraid. They feared him. They chained him. They, they kind of let him roam around. This guy comes running up to Jesus, and you don't see Jesus going like, oh, here he comes. Think about how disarming this is. Hey, what's your name? That seemed like a bizarre thing for Jesus to ask the guy. Hey, what's your name? Jesus clearly has the power here, and he uses his power what? He uses it to eradicate, to cast out these demons who have power over this guy, to eradicate the demons, but he also used it to expose the evil and sin in the townspeople. But he uses his power in the case of this man to restore him. This is, this is the gospel all right here in a couple sentences. Look at the state of the guy. He's totally disintegrated, and then he becomes totally integrated, right? What does it say about him? When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at his feet, dressed, and in his right mind. Sitting at Jesus' feet. He's not running around like crazy anymore. Sitting at Jesus' feet, I mean, that's, that's the image of a disciple. That's an image of someone saying, I'm surrendered to you, and I'm following you now. I'm here, right? I'm in, a, I'm in a place of humility. I'm surrendered. He's sitting at Jesus' feet. He's clothed. We could tease out any of one of these. This guy was totally naked. He's clothed, right? What does Scripture say? That we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ now. He's covered our nakedness. He's covered our shame, right? And he's in his right mind. He's not tormented and torn apart now. He's He's in his right head now. This is a picture of full restoration, body, mind, relationship to others, relationship to God. This is how Jesus uses his power over evil and sin in this guy's life. And y'all, this is a window into the full picture. This is just a glimpse into the fuller picture of what Scripture says will one day be completely true about all of us and all of creation that everything will be restored physically, relationally, creationally, communally, the whole shebang. That's what this is saying. But Jesus has that kind of power over evil and over sin. 
And this is how he uses it. He uses it to eradicate evil here. He uses it to expose some evil here. But he also uses it to restore. He uses that power to restore a man. And he restores him to something really important. That's the third point. The power of telling what Jesus has done for you. I love the ending of this story. Because it says the man from whom the demons had gone out, he begged to go with Jesus, right? And that's, heck yeah. I'd be like, I'm with them, right? Let's go. <laughs> but Jesus says no. He says, Jesus, please, 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 let me come with you. He's like, yeah, no. Why? Well, he tells him there, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to return home and go tell how much God has done for you. And so he did it, Right? He's a man under authority now. He's a man under the influence of the Spirit. He's going to be, yes, Jesus, you've rescued me. Tell me what to do now. So he went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Here's the point. I, I'm not healing you or setting you free just to hang out with me and to spend time with me. I have literally rescued you from darkness to life to go tell people that is the answer to the pain in your world. That's the power that's available. I mean, you think about this. You can make this argument. Jesus gives the great commission to this guy before he gives it to the disciples. Go tell him. All authority and power on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. Make disciples, and I'll be with you, even to the end of the age. You don't have to come with me because I'm with you, is what he's saying to this guy. I'm with you. And so what did he do? Cool. I'll go tell everybody. There's a place in Mark's account of this where he goes, Jesus goes back to this region, and a lot of people knew about who Jesus was at that point. So he, he might have turned into this giant evangelist for Jesus, right? But that's what we're called to be. <laughs> that's what he saved you from. He, he, this table is not he's just saved you from your sin. He saved you to something. You are a billboard of rescuing grace. That's what's happened for you and for me. And so, hey, we don't just hang out with Jesus. Of course we hang out with Jesus. We don't have to go hang out with Jesus. He's with us, and he's with us wherever we go, just like this guy. And so that brings us to the table, because this table declares something. This is the table that declares that in Christ's work on the cross, evil has already ultimately been defeated. The battle's over. It is finished right, is what he said. Sin's work is undone. I know that we still experience sin and the effects of sin in this world. That's a whole other sermon. We can talk about that some other time. But ultimately, sin's work is undone. 1 John 4, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. We don't have to be afraid anymore. And yes, we live in a world that awaits the full consummation, the full enchilada of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross through his death and through his resurrection. But in this meal, we actually are doing what this guy did. We are bearing witness. Jesus, you've done so much for me. So we're practicing what we get to go practice out there right now. This meal is a declaration. Look at what you've done for me. I maybe wasn't demon-possessed, but I needed just as a miraculous of a rescue. Because Scripture says what? I was dead in my sin. My heart was dead to the things of God like those townspeople. 
And you set me free from sin's rule and sin's reign, and you've given me what? A new name, a new heart, a new identity, a new spirit. You've given me a right mind. I have the mind of Christ is what Scripture says. But he knows something because we still are in the flesh. We have to feed and be spiritually nourished all the time so that we don't go back to living in the tombs like a crazy person or go back to living like the townspeople like it's all about our market share and our pig portfolio. You got to feed on this truth of your identity all the time to not live in the old self because I've created you to live in the new. So if you're in Christ this morning, you run to this table. If you've accepted him, if he set you free, you run up here and you belly up to this table and you say, thank you for your grace and thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you reintegrated me with you, right? If you're not in Christ this morning, if you're in the townspeople or you feel like sin has got control in your life, would you come to him? He wants to set you free by his power. He wants to step into your life in such a way that you could come to this table with integrity and say, Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. Don't push him away. Do not push him away, people. If you hear his voice this morning, do not harden your hearts. Don't harden him. Come to him. Because he wants to liberate you in ways that you can't even imagine. For those of us who are in Christ, Paul invites us always to examine. Examine a place in your life. And this is probably more the townspeople. What's got control in your life that you don't really realize has got control in my life? That if I saw laying in the bay, floating, I'd be like, no thanks, Jesus. That's just a great opportunity at the table to say, Lord, you know, search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Show me my heart. See, you know, show me the way everlasting. Restore me to the joy of my salvation. And then let me get out of here walking in the freedom of that, all right? When you're ready, come forward. Servers will serve you when you put out your hands. If you want prayer, cross your arms. We'll pray for you. If you're gluten-free, that's over here. Sorry, I was going to make some gluten-free joke. I'm not going to do that. It's a real thing. If you're gluten-free over here, uh, when you're done, exit the sides. Um, I'm going to pray for us after I read the words of institution from Paul. All right? Let's come to the table. Hmm. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed. He took bread, and when he gave him thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we come to this meal. Thank you. Uh, We're like little kids who need to be fed to be reminded of who we are. Uh, Pray that at this table, if there is any spiritual bondage (laughs) happening this morning in any way, you would set people free at this table. That people would leave this time and say, I don't even know how to explain what happened to me when I took communion this morning. But Jesus met me. And he spoke to me. And he, he stepped into my life in such a significant way that I know that something's different. Would you do that for us this morning? Would you take care of our hearts would you show us places that you still want to separate us from our sin uh, so that we can walk fully in our identity in you? Uh, we don't have the power to do it. We can't set ourselves free. Thank you that this table says you already have in your name. Amen.